If you have the Word of God, I'd love for you to take it to Acts chapter number 2. Acts chapter number 2 That's where we'll take our reading from this morning. We'll read a familiar passage, one that we've read many times over the last couple of months. And focus in on one more aspect of the church. And I hope it's been beneficial to you. The topic of the church is just inexhaustible. Um, It's something that after we get done here, we could all probably sit down and think, man, I should have discussed this, I should have discussed that. Um, Organization of the church, the um, ordinances of the church, or the sacraments, whatever terminology um, you desire. Um, The function of the church, um, its witness, a hundred other things. Um, But I hope that you've got the point, um, which is ultimately that the church is essential. Um, it's essential not because of, not only because of Christ, the things that Christ commands us to do, um, but because of who we are. These are things that we are. And to ask us to cease to function in the capacity that one day may come, and in former days men and um, tyrants have required of the church to do, is to actually ask us to cease being what we are. It would be like, Asking a fish not to swim, or caging a, a bird, binding its wings and telling it never to fly. To ask the church not to gather and to worship, and when we can do it safely, um, is to ask us to be something that we're not. Um, and that one, also while we gather, um, one, of the, one of the inherent uh, virtues along with gathering according to God's word, according to his spirit, um, is that the presence of Christ is upon us and with us. That it is essential that we meet because this is where Christ meets with us. Now, I know that as individuals, Christ is with us. We are individually temples. Um, he dwells in us and he walks alongside us. But there is a uniqueness um, about the corporate gathering that you don't get at home. Um, if that's the case, then why all the instruction? Why the entirety of the New Testament, which seems to be placed in the context of a local New Testament church? Why all the instruction? Why all of the, uh, the definitions? Why all of the practical application? Um, it is something that we are called to do, um, and that when we do it faithfully, according to God's Word, submissive to His Spirit, um, then we trust that Christ uniquely meets with us in a way that He, can't, he, ha- he does not anywhere else. Um, in the preaching of God's word, he is, Christ is publicly displayed. Um, in the prayers of the saints, Christ is administered to us in, in a special way as we gather around the sacraments or the ordinances and we take the Lord's Supper as we fellowship and a, and a number of other things. Christ is uniquely present with us in this corporate gathering. Thus, it is essential. Um, the gathering of God's people is, 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 is as essential as the presence of Christ because the presence of Christ is uniquely um, here manifest um, in the submission of God's people. So I hope that at least if nothing else, again, there's a hundred other things I could have done, but if nothing else, I hope that you understand, understand that. Thus we come to Acts chapter 2 and verse uh, 42. If you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. When you read these words, Acts 2.42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then fear came upon every soul. 
Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, sold their possessions and all and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you and praise you for the privilege of gathering together. Father, we throw ourselves upon you this morning and upon your Son because we know that outside of that, we are nothing. We know what John the Apostle writes to us in his gospel, um, that to abide in anything outside of Christ is to be able to accomplish nothing, that without him, we are nothing and can do nothing, and our lives will amount to absolutely nothing. We will say with the writer of Ecclesiastes, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. But we know that it's not. We're already reminded this morning in our first hour, and I pray that we're all reminded here now that we were created for a particular purpose, and that was the ultimate, ultimately the glory of God. And these are just a means to give you what you deserve. So, Father, would you allow us this morning in Christ by the power of your spirit, to give you what you deserve. And that's the worship of God's people. Your son died for it, Father, and you deserve it. So would you, would you do that this morning? Father, would you take your spirit uh, to um, the very depths of our heart? Father, would you um, brighten darkened minds this morning? Would you open deaf ears, Father? Would you loosen bound tongues, Father? Would you strengthen lame legs, Father? Would you give us the ability to come to you boldly in the very throne room of grace? God, as we enter into your presence, would we be able to say at the end of the day, may we be able to say, Father, at the end of the day that we met with Christ as we met with God's people. Father, may your word go forth with power and as a sharp and two-edged sword, dividing asunder the very thoughts, the intents of our heart. Father, would you take the, word, the mirror of the word of God this morning and just show us ourselves. Father, at the same time, would you show us you? Would we behold our God, um, Father, in the light of Scripture? And would you enable us, Lord, the privilege and the great opportunity to cast ourselves aside and to appropriate Christ, and to take off the old man and to put on the new. Father, would you give us more love this morning? Would you give us more grace? Would you give us more charity, Father? Would you give us more joy? Would you give us more reverence? Would you give us more awe? Father, we know that this is what you desire, and it's a good thing, Father. So we know that you won't deprive us of any good gifts. So would you give us this morning your spirit, and will he just rule and reign in our hearts and lives? And take the word of God, Father, and do with it as he pleases. And may we be the ready recipients this morning of eternal glory as you change our lives and meet with us and your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And again, thank you. Two weeks I plan to be back in the book of Mark. And I pray that this study has benefited your soul. But I'm, as I think and preach on the nature of the word of God and what it accomplishes I think verse by verse exposition is what we need now so but until then um, let us give our attention just a couple more weeks to this 
In Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 is probably a very familiar passage, not only in the context of this church and the preaching, but also maybe in your lives. You've probably heard many sermons on it. Um, it's the uh, birth, in some sense, in a practical sense, of the New Testament church. I, I don't believe it's the, the birth of the church altogether. Of course, you see God's people all throughout the Old Testament. There is a uniqueness about something that happens here, particularly in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter number 2, as you see the formalization of the New Covenant. Um, you see the, the Spirit of God come down upon the people of God, particularly the apostles, but even more than that, 120 in an upper room. Um, clothes of, 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 of fire, of tongues and fire just rest upon um, the New Testament church, the people of God in a unique way, in a way that Joel prophesied in Joel chapter 2. And all of this is coming to fruition. And now you're seeing the fullness of the New Testament church. You're seeing the fullness of the new covenant. And you're seeing the preaching of the gospel in a way that really, um, that, that, that even in some sense, even Christ's ministry pales in comparison to not to say that it, that, that it failed, and that, that's not the, the, the purpose of that statement at all. Jesus even promises the apostles that once he's gone and the Spirit comes, that they would do even greater things. That the nations would finally be uh, reached, that it would go forward not, not, not only to Jew, but also to Gentile. Um, that it would reach the uttermost parts of the earth. Why? Because all authority was given to him in heaven and on earth. So it was in the, the, the fullness of His death and the fullness of His resurrection and the fullness of the coming of the Spirit of God in Acts chapter number 2 that we really see the equipping of the church to be able to um, fulfill its great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And in some sense, in some infant form, uh, but in some real full form as well, we see that happen in Acts chapter 2 when Peter stands at Pentecost and he preaches and thousands are saved. And he preaches a scathing message particularly to the Jews um, who had murdered the Christ, and he points at them and their particular sin and uh, calls them to faith and calls them to repentance. And the Spirit of God not only falls in the uniqueness on the 120, but He falls in uniqueness upon 3,000 and uh, thousands to follow. Um, the Scripture says there at the end of that passage that daily people are going to be added to the church, um, those who are being saved. That the apostles and that the church are now equipped by the Spirit of God and the gospel message to go into the uttermost parts of the earth, and that's exactly what you'll see um, happen. You, but, but in this portion of Scripture, you see Peter uh, finished with the message of the gospel, that scathing rebuke of those who had murdered Christ, but also that glorious, um, that glorious presentation of Christ's saving grace upon their lives. And in verse 40, um, he says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation, and those who gladly received his word. Um, were baptized. In that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And you see God's just amazing, saving grace upon the lives of 3,000. 3,000 which one day you will be allowed to meet. Um, brothers and sisters in Christ who had, who had themselves done the unthinkable and murdered the Christ. And we like to think of ourselves so virtuous to think that in those days we would have stood up for Him but even those that were closest to Him on that great day that we'll celebrate even uh, this coming Friday, um, uh, that we will think and commemorate in this coming Sunday, that great resurrection as the Lord Jesus Christ there hangs upon a cross. He hangs there alone. He hangs there with scoffers and mockers. He hangs there um, as His apostles whom He'd walked, walked with for you know, three years and, and greater are there. They've abandoned Him. Out of the fear of what was going to happen, they didn't fully understand it and and God is so gracious, and Jesus is so gracious, and the Spirit is so gracious to 
even in the midst of that, to come to some of the very men um, and some of the very women who had possibly been a part of that great mob um, who cried, don't give us, or don't take Barabbas, but take, take Jesus. And this same Jesus whom you crucified is now publicly displayed before you. And the gospel message is extended to all those who would believe, and 3,000 are saved. And then, and then the grace just continues. It's not only a saving grace, it's a changing, transforming grace, it's a sanctifying grace that God would not only save them eternally, but He would meet with them and offer His presence and the means of grace that He's provided as the people of God gather together and do primarily, I would argue, these four things. The Apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, and the breaking of bread and in prayers. And I know that I haven't talked about all of those in order, and going back I probably would have, but um, anyway, we trust God's providence and... And today we want to give our attention to this last of the four, um, the fellowship. The final devotion of the people of God um, after being saved. That every person throughout every age um, since the time of Christ uh, need to give their attention to is the fellowship. The fellowship. And I read to you the, King, the New King James Version or the translation of the Bible, and it says that and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. But I want to argue that I think a, a more faithful, or at least a more literal translation for that would be um, probably what many of you have, which is an ESV or an NASB. Um, I, I'm not sure about the NAS, um, but the ESV I know says the fellowship. All of these in the original language um, have definite... <laughs> Particles there that would identify that he's speaking of something specifically and not just something um, in general. And that may not sound like a big deal to you. But if it says the fellowship, then what they were devoting themselves to was the local church at Jerusalem. If it merely says fellowship without, and it's indefinite, without a definite particle there, then what they were talking about was simply an activity. So the question arises, were they devoting themselves to a body of believers in Jerusalem? Or were they devoting themselves to the acts of fidelity um, to other people? And I think that once we define what it is, it will actually clarify the other, that both of these things come together, but both of these things come together because I believe of the definite particle there. The definite article is there. The reason we don't find it in most English translation, um, that honestly... Is, is somewhat beyond me. Um, and I'm not sure the reason. And I don't mean that in a negative way like they mishandled the Word of God. Uh, there were men that were much, much smarter than me and labored longer than me in this translation, so I don't question the integrity of those particularly um, puritanical men faithful to God who translated the King James uh, Bible. But for some reason, they made an interpretive decision not to include it. But nevertheless, it's in the original, and the definite article is there, and thus, it should be translated in a literal fashion, the fellowship. Now, either way, you could, translate, you could, you could interpret it um, the, the same way. You know, if I were to speak of um, the computer and Bible on my pulpit, you would know that even though I didn't put the computer in the Bible, I'm speaking of a particular Bible. So the, so the interpretation is there. It's just much more clearer in, um, if, if the the is there. Um, so I'm going to argue this morning that what is being devoted to here by the New Testament church and what our devotion should be given to by us as a local New Testament church is the fellowship. It is a noun, not a verb. 
that it is speaking of the people of God. And that, that term fellowship is, is going to also define for us the activity in which we are to give ourselves over to. And that may not seem important to you, but it seems important to me. And it seems important to me today because of the, um, of the attitude of a lot of people, not in our church, but in churches all around, and an attitude that I probably had at one time, um, that I can live my life as an individual apart from the people of God um, and fellowship with um, other believers and other people without having any attachment or covenanting with or commitment or devotion um, to a local church, um, to a group of, of Bible-believing, God, you know, blood-washed, born-again, um, saved by the grace of God people. I'm going to argue that, that the thing that they, they gave themselves to and the thing that governed their activity was their devotion to the fellowship. The fellowship wasn't just a general term. It wasn't just um, something that was to be lived out to, to anyone and to everyone. But that God had ordained that the people of God throughout the ages, as exemplified by the apostolic um, band here in the New Testament church that were born, that all of the one another's and that the fellowship, the, 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 the original term is koinonia here. It's used 20 times in the Bible um, that, that, that we know of. And its primary meaning is fellowship, sharing, having something in common with, or communion. That, that, there are a group, that there is a group of people in which this activity is primarily to be carried out with. That it's not to be generally administered to anyone and everyone, but to a particular group of people. In a similar way, that your responsibilities as a father and as a husband and as children within the family... Um, that you are to offer them a love and an intimacy um, that you are not to offer simply to anyone and everyone outside the world. Um, that there is a particular love that the people of God are to have for God's people that is even distinguished um, against the, the love that we have for the lost. And I know that that's a hard thing to understand for a lot of people, um, but at the same time, it's very easy to understand when you look at it in a family context. Again, I have a love for my wife, and it's not an unloving thing to say that I love her in a way and in a fashion that I love no one else, no other woman in this world. Um, Jesus Christ loves the church in a way and in a fashion that he loves um, not even necessarily the entirety of the world. And we can argue this from Scripture, uh, particularly in the New Testament, from, from front to back. Um, and that the church is to give and devote themselves to the people of God in a way that um, the world um, does not receive our love. That doesn't mean that we don't love. It doesn't mean that just because I love my wife, I don't love um, other uh, females in all the world. I just love them with a different type of love. I love uh, your children in a different way than I love my children. And it doesn't mean that we don't have a love for the world that would cause us to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Paul recognizes in Romans chapter 9 that there's a love that God gave him for his people. Um, but, he, but he actually even says to, to, to those according to his flesh. It's not even to all the world. That God gives him an affection and, and an affirmation of love for a particular group of people um, that, 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 that he gives all of his, that, that, that he even says, I would give myself and make, my, make me accursed um, that God would save them. That there are differing degrees of love. And that one of the great loves that you are to have that is a distinguished love, even against uh, apart from the world, is that you are to have a love for God's people, Christ's bride for whom He died. And that is to manifest itself in a shared life, in a life of communion 
one with another. And that is something that we all are to be steadfastly devoted to or to steadfastly continue in. Um, the, I think it's the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible defines this term fellowship here in this passage of Scripture as the essence, quote, the essence of the Christian life. The fellowship with God and fellowship with other believers in Christ is the essence of the Christian life. And you see that in 1 John chapter number 1 and verses 3 through 5. You see that uh, these, these words, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. In 2 Corinthians 13 and verse number 14, you read these words. And it speaks of fellowship with the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse number 14. The grace of the Lord, this is Paul's desire for Corinth. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The same word there, koinonia, or fellowship. And just those two verses, and it's not limited to those alone, what we find is that God's purpose to us, that, that, that Christianity is a Trinitarian fellowship. That we in 1 John fellowship with the Father through the Son. And that in 2 Corinthians uh, 13, 14, that we have fellowship with the Spirit according to Christ um, and with the Father. That Christianity is a, is, a, is a Trinitarian fellowship. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why? And He put man in it on that sixth day to commune with Him. Sin entered in, broke fellowship with God, and God has spent um, in Christ the last six to 10,000 years or however long we've been around um, he, he put Christ into the world to restore that fellowship with us. And that's what Christ accomplished. But that Trinitarian fellowship also manifests itself in not only vertically, but also horizontally. That fellowship is not only to be carried out with the Father, with the Son, and with the Holy Spirit, but also with God's people. Early church father um, writes this and gives a beautiful description here of exactly what that looked like. He says this was an angelic commonwealth, speaking of the church here, not to call anything of theirs their own. Forthwith, the root of easels was cut out. None reproached, none envied, none grudged, no pride, no contempt was there. The poor man knew no shame and the rich no haughtiness. What you see in Acts chapter 2 is a unique relationship that God had birthed out of the work of Christ according to His Spirit and the plan of God the Father um, that was unique in all the world. That it was the Trinitarian love of God was poured out upon them all. Um, and if the Trinitarian love of God is poured out in them, will not the love of God be manifested in their lives? That's the argument. That will not God make Himself known to the world through the living in and living through you? That if the purpose of God the Father is to send Christ the Son into the world to die for your sins, to bring you into communion with Him then will not it be manifest to all and uniquely to one another that very love, that the claim to know God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in a great and a unique and a saving way, yet not to love our brother, John says in 1 John, um, is, to, is, to, is to lie and to make God a liar. That if you don't express love one to another, and I'm going to argue, I believe that John is talking there particularly, not, not, all, not only about 
the, the, the family of God, but particularly and especially about the family of God. That um, the one another's that are, that are spoken of throughout the New Testament um, are, are, are put in the context of a local church. And he says that um, if the love of God, if you say that the love of God dwells in you, yet it doesn't manifest and you turn away your brother, then, then you make God a liar. Why? Because the love of God has been spread abroad in your hearts, thus, um, thus it should be manifest. That God will make known to the world Himself in the presence of Christ through you and the love that you have for one another. See, if you had a problem earlier with the love that you are to have and the love that God has particularly for the church and for His bride and for the people, and you say, well, what about the world? This is God's evangelistic plan. This is the, there's a unique relationship here that manifests in unity to the world. Then that's why he says Christ's prayer in and of itself that we went over weeks and months ago. Um, that in John 17, Christ's prayers that there would be a unity among the people of God and a love there. You know, love one another. Why, that, that, that the world will know that you are my disciples. That there's a uniqueness of the love that the Father and a unity of the love that the Father and the Son have together and that the church, Christ's prayer for you and for this local body is that it would be so manifest that all the world would see and know that there is a God in heaven. That this is God's evangelistic plan. That this is not to lay aside the world. Um, This is not to forget that there's a world out there that's dying and lost. So if there's any form of unity that is fostered here at Christ Bible Church that does not ultimately culminate in an evangelistic effort to reach the nations for the cause of Christ, then, 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 then we have to come to the ultimate conclusion that it is a unity that is not born of Christ. That if there's a uniformity here that gathers together in a uniqueness even apart from the world, a uniformity that, that, that carries with it anything other than resulting in the evangelistic outreach and the desire for all nations to come to Christ, um, if it does it apart from Christ and it, and it looks like if, if it's born out of anything other than Christ, then it needs to be um, discarded. That it's not true. Love. It's not Christ devoted love. The church is to be, uh, to manifest, is to be devoted. Um, it's not easy come, easy go. It's to be consistent, it's to be persistent, it's to be sacrificial. Luke gives us a picture of what that devotion and that fellowship looks like here in verse number 44. He says, Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. It's a, it's a similar word there, it's the same root word um, as our fellowship, common. It, it doesn't mean that they shared commonalities. It wasn't a social gathering or anything like that. It literally means shared. They shared in together. And that's why in verse 45, they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Uh, that one of the things that Christ accomplished in saving the people out of the world for Himself um, is to save a group of people that shouldn't be together and giving them a commonality, a shared life. That's the argument in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3. That's the argument here. That's the argument all throughout. That's Paul's argument. You know? Um, That he dies to buy people of all sorts out of every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. And it creates... You know what it creates? It creates an interesting dynamic. (laughs) Because now you've got a group of people, uh, you know, who are mostly made of a ragtag group of which nobody would choose because they're weak, they lack intelligence, they're foolish, they're botched by sin, and now they're constantly coming together. They don't really have anything in common. That's the argument in Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3. Jew and Gentile, they shouldn't be together because they have nothing in common. But here you see uh, people of God coming together that's going to be somewhat our example of a shared life in the beginning of the New Testament church and the fulfillment of the New Covenant. 
And they're going to give themselves over in a unique way, one to another, to where they are each at each other's disposal. Many have taken this passage of Scripture and tried to argue socialism and communism. I'm just going to go ahead and tell you without any detail, I reject that notion. Um, that communism and, and uh, socialism is, a, is, is, is breaking of the commandment, thou shalt not steal. Here what you have is a group of people out of love voluntarily devote themselves one to another in a unique fashion as Jesus Christ voluntarily enters into the world and offers himself to you in a unique fashion and gives himself and everything that he has. Why? Because, that we have, because of the need that we, we have. Now, what I'm arguing here is that this is no ordinary friendship. That this is family. This is family. This is family. But here they were not just sharing food. They were sharing all possessions as each person had need. They were sharing themselves. Um, in a portion of Scripture that Nathan read this morning, if you were to go on, and, and maybe it was in that portion as well, that they not, they, they not only gave of their wallets, but they gave of themselves first. There is a uniqueness to the people of God to where um, there is a fellowship, a sharing of one another. If you think about the relationship that we have with the Trinity that Christ shares with us, His nature, who He is, and, and His benefits, and His sacrifice, and His atonement. And it's the same word that's used here. And it's the same idea that's used here. That there is a sharing of oneself, one with another. That it's more than just a, 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 a simple friendship. It's more than just getting together on the Lord's Day on Sunday and, and having small talk. It's sharing with one another. You know? I read a story this week of a mother and a father who were in a store, in a department store. And a man took off his mask and just you know, randomly kissed the other little girl. What they do? They called the police. You know? They were livid. Um, and they should be right, rightly so. Why? Because a stranger came up and he did something that only a father or a mother or a child could do. But I've been in a store a hundred times and my little girl will walk up and, you know, take off her mask or whatever and kiss Haddon in the seat. That she has privileges within the family that nobody else outside the family has. There's a relationship and a bond there, a sharing, you know. It'd be like sitting in a restaurant and a stranger coming up and, and taking a, uh, just a random bite out of my medium rare steak, you know. Um, we'll probably have some words or... Who knows what will culminate. But any one of my children can just slide up beside, take a fork and take a piece of baked potato off of my plate without any issues. Why? Because we share a common life. There's an intimacy there which brings privileges which other people in the world do not have. I remember my mother, and I still, my mother is still alive to this day um, in, in, in Kentucky, and I can still walk into her house. I don't have to knock on the door. Um, I can open the fridge and pull out a bowl of whatever it is, and, and there's no argument. That's actually what she expects. That because I'm born into that family, and because um, my children are born into my family, and because we're born in, into Christ's family, it brings unique relationship privileges and benefits which the rest of the world does not have. Thus, we could argue that, that if uh, the relationship that you have with this congregation is no distinctly different than any other institution in all the world, then, then we are living... Um, not in the fellowship of God's people. We're not devoting ourselves to um, the fellowship. That This wasn't a mere friendship. This was, um, this was a family. A family. You know, it's interesting. The, the word here in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 42, and in, in the New King James and in the King James, it, it translates it continues steadfastly. You know, this week as I was studying that word, if you were to go and just search the word steadfastly in the New Testament, uh, a number of texts would pop up. 
Um, the first of which would be Luke chapter. If you want to take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter nine and verse number fifty-one, I want to read just I want to read just consecutively a few verses for you to give you an idea of what this word steadfastly means. In Luke chapter nine and verse number fifty-one, you read these words. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Note that phrase, steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. We're going to have a Bible drill here. So Acts chapter 1 and verse number 10. Acts chapter 1 and verse number 10, you read this. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by him in white apparel. Acts chapter um, 2 and verse 42, of course, is the next one. But if you were to turn to Acts chapter 6 and verse number 15, you would read these words. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. Acts chapter 7 and verse number 55, you read these words. But he being full of the Holy Spirit gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. If you had a King James Version, it would literally say steadfastly that he saw that he gazed, saw steadfastly. Um, two other uses of the word steadfastly in the King James is 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 7 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13. And I just want to read those to you. And there's a point to it, I promise. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 13, you see this. Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily or steadfastly at the end of what was passing away. And then in verse 7, prior to that, you, wrote, you, re, you would read, But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not look steadfastly or steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which the glory was passing away. And again, in the New King James, or the King James particularly, um, that's all the instances that God used, or that the New Testament writers used to speak of this steadfastness, this continuous. And it's interesting whenever you, you read those passages, they all, with the exception of, of Acts chapter 2.42, have something in common. If you were to go back and read Luke 9, Acts 1, Acts 6, Acts 7, 2 Corinthians 3, um, in the context of steadfastness or steadfastly, every single one of those texts, they were steadfastly looking at something. In Luke chapter 9, 51, Jesus steadfastly sets His face. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 10, the disciples look steadfastly at the sky. In Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, you see Paul uh, steadfastly looking, the disciples steadfastly looking and gazing into the face of Stephen who's going to be martyred. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, they're steadfastly looking and gazing into uh, Moses and the law of Moses. Does that mean anything? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe it means that the type of devotion and steadfastness that we are to have is like an intense stare or gaze at something. Because it is so filled with the glory of God that it catches our attention and demands our constant gaze upon it. We can't take our eyes off of it. It is something with such glory. The glory it manifests the glory of God. That there could be glorious things around it. But in the presence of this thing, it is as if the other things aren't shining at all. You know? It would be like similar to the love that you have and the first time that you saw, I mean, you saw your wife or wives to husbands or this or that, 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 that she carries with her a unique beauty in which 
Someone could come up and say after the service or in in a different context, hey, did you see her? And you would say, no. She never shines or she never, there was never a love that I have for, for them like I have for her. That it was as if they weren't even in the room. It was as if on that wedding day, I couldn't tell you one moment or one person or tell you anything else, but when she opened, when the, when the doors were open, the song began and she came down. I couldn't tell you who was at our wedding, <laughs> except for me and her. You know, but there is a love that, that is bestowed upon her, and there's a love that she has for me that is, that is, it is as if sometimes the, the kids are not even in the room. You know, as if we are, no one else is even there. That there is just something that is so beautiful that carries with it such, uh, such glory, and you have such love for it that it is as if nothing else, everything else could be shining in the room, but it is as if you walked outside and there was a, 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 a bay full of candles and the sun is bright. So bright that it brings into pale comparison. Those things aren't even considered a flame. That's similar to the idea. Imagine if you were a first century sheep herder who in all likelihood knows nothing about the you know, 640 lumen uh, flashlight that you might have at home that could you know, light up an entire community when the lights go out. All he knows is of a little flicker or a little flame that he lights up his campfire at night. Imagine he's there um, in the midst of the Jews and Jewish context of Acts chapter number 6 and 7. And the only light and the only flame that he really knows of um, is the campfire flame. Imagine for a moment that, that as Stephen is being martyred and he's being stoned after he preaches the Word of God and his face shines like no other. Imagine if you were in the days of Moses as he comes off the mount and his light shine, his face shines because it has been in the very presence and the glory of God. Imagine if you're in Mark chapter number 9 and Jesus is upon the mount and his face shines purer, it says, than any garment could ever, than Tide or OxyClean could get out. You know? That there is something that carries with it a weight and a, 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 a shine and a glory that nothing else in the area ever could compare to. Such that it brings all other into pale in comparison to it. I imagine that as Stephen is being stoned, they couldn't take their eyes off. I imagine as the disciples were up there on the Mount of Transfiguration, um, Jesus was there, captured their gaze. I imagine as Moses comes down off of the mountain and it, upon him is the glory of God in a way that uh, men had never seen before, that that's all that they could remember. They don't remember the shrubbery. They don't remember the day. They don't remember this or that. But they can, without a doubt, that they remember Moses' face. Maybe that's the way we're to think about the church. But outside the Word of God, the local church is the glory of God on the earth in its most accessible form. It is the church where the saints gather to meet their Lord and worship every high and holy Lord's day. It is the place where the atonement of Christ is celebrated and death is mocked not only on, on Easter but on every single uh, first day of the, of the week um, that we gather together. It's the place where the atonement is, is, is exalted and that Christ's name is made uh, publicly uh, known. It is where Christ is sung. Every single week is keen and the divine monarch condescends in a manifest way to be personal and intimate with his royal subjects. It's the place where the blood of Christ is preached because he is the chief cornerstone. It's the place that the church is where the glory of God on earth is and thus we fix our gaze upon it. It is the embassy of God's kingdom. 
in this world. It is the outpost of God's elect. It is the training ground for taking what is rightfully His in this world. It is where the treasury, um, contain, in its treasury, it contains the gospel. In it is the glory of God. In it is the glory of God. Is that where your devotion lies? Is that, do you come week after week with an awe in your heart because you met with Christ as you met with God's people? What are you devoted to? That's the idea. And the, and the idea here is not just being devoted to the fellowship. That would be the entirety of the, of the, of the activity. That that's the way we think about prayer. That that's the way we think about the apostles' doctrine. That that's the way we think about um, the fellowship, the church, gathering together, doing this thing. That that's the way that we think about the Lord's table. That there is a uniqueness about it that, that the world does not have and they cannot give. And it benefits the soul. And grace is extended such that the glory of Christ is, is manifest and that we walk away sometimes um, knowing that we have met with God. That He has fed our souls and that He has nourished our inner men and our inner women and that, that there's something here that we come and to gather and get that we can't get from the rest of the world. Do you gaze upon the people of God? You say, you haven't seen them in all of their mess. I know. I'm a mess. My wife's a mess. Our family's a mess. I've still never seen a woman more beautiful. You know, that it's in the mess. That even in the mess, you're still to be devoted. And there's a beauty that manifests um, that is out of this world. What are you devoted to? What are you Because de- you're devoted to something. I'm devoted to something. There's no doubt. What steadfastly continues to catch your gaze? You know, what institution in the world um, continually just takes your attention. And you think, man, there's nothing like that. Is it the church? Is it the church? Our culture has a systemic problem with commitment and devotion. And as a result, many of us do as well. Some time ago, Wall Street Journal um, uh, gave some statistics. By the age 20, um, one out of four women you know, lived with a man outside of marriage. By age 35, three out of four had um, lived without any commitment or covenanting together. Average time on a job just a few years ago was 2.2 years. Average time of a marriage um, is not much longer than that anymore. Most people don't even get married. You know, Many people argue that the, the divorce rate in the church is as good or is, is, is even greater than the divorce rate in the, the world. Well, there's a reason for that because most of the world doesn't get married anymore. Um, they just live together in a cohabitation. But then it even creeps into the church. Um, the average time of an evangel- the, the average time for a member to be in, a, in, a, in any evangelical church in America is three years. A pastor does a little bit better than that. He usually he, he typically will stay for three point six years. That we are a culture that craves change. That we are a culture that craves the new. And even if it's not that new and shiny and uh, even more bright, we just crave different. Thus, we're always moving and buying different things and changing relationships and changing jobs because we think that the grass is greener on the other side. That we live in America uniquely, I think, in human history in a culture of disposability. It's pervasive. For example, 
I need some work on a lawnmower probably. Does anybody know of a repair shop in town? You know? But there was a time when you could turn to the Yellow Pages, and most of the kids don't even know what Yellow Pages are. But you could find a shop to repair your chainsaw, your weed eater, your washer, your dryer, your lawnmower. There was a time when you could take a piece of furniture and get it fixed, or a garment to be patched, sewn, or hemmed. There was a time in recent days when you could find cobblers to resole shoes, a pair of boots would last two decades, electronics could be fixed. Now, Radio Shack is practically out of business. Cobblers are hard to find. Small engine repair shops are almost non-existent. Why? Because everything is made cheaper with shorter lifespans such that when it dies, it's just as cheap or cheaper to buy a new one. And actually, it's more prudent oftentimes now in our culture because the last one you bought and the technology is so far removed. What they is supposedly so much better. And what they generally mean by that is that they've created a way for, to make things more convenient for you to use. So, of course, you have less work for less money and less the hassle. It's a no-brainer. The vast majority of people that are fixing things, if anything is getting fixed anymore, are manufacturings because they've put a warranty on it, and they have to, otherwise you'll take them to court. Or many of you are using your own ingenuity now, pulling up YouTube and fixing your own things. Why? To save yourself a little bit of money. But the fact remains that much of what we are sold today in American culture is purposefully made to be disposed of in a short period of time. Think about your cell phone. If you have an iPhone, you know, in three years, two years, if it lasts one year, you're going to have to discard it and buy a new one, an all-new regalia to go with it. And it may not seem that big of a deal, but the mindset doesn't just extend to the materials that we have and the things that we own. The mentality might not be so dangerous if it didn't pervade all areas of our lives. Because we think the same way about our marriages. We think the same way about our friendships. We think the same way about our churches. We think the same way oftentimes even about our faith. But there was a time when something broke, you fixed it. There was a time when something was, was, was failing that you put work into it. A little bit of elbow grease. There was a time when people were devoted to different things. It was hard, but it was worth it. And now we budget into our lives disposability. Think about the last year that you budgeted. You probably budgeted not to fix things because of our culture, but to buy new things. You know, there used to be a time when a stove would last an entire marriage, and now you're good if it lasts 8 to 10 years. So you budget in buying a new one. Why? Because the old one um, isn't worth keeping up. We budget in also the possibility that a marriage won't work out. We budget in that this friendship might not, but there's more friends out there and there's more fish in the sea. We budget in in our own lives, you know, the, the, the possibility of changing jobs. I mean, if this one doesn't work out, then I can go and get another job with this company. We budget in churches. We'll try this one for a little while. And if for some reason it doesn't work out, they don't have the right programs or this person rubs me the wrong way or this and that, we'll hang out and we won't commit ourselves in the event that we kind of need to pick up and go. There's not a devotedness to much of anything anymore. People enter into a marriage wondering when the other one's going to leave. You know? Um, parents, uh, children, because their children, because their parents fight all the time and their, their friend at school, um, their parents divorce. They wonder when their parents will get divorced. You know? Churches aren't devoted to much anymore. You know, people, people pick up and go for this or that. There's not much of a devoted mentality anymore. There's not much of steadfastness. There's, there's convenience. There's, there's American um, consumerism. 
The New Testament church doesn't know anything about that though. The New Testament church is a devoted church. It is a church that's born out of a devotedness of Christ to it, thus it devotes itself one to another. You know, the first Baptist church of Antioch, <laughs> if something went wrong, um, they would have had to pick up everything and move over to uh, Jerusalem. Um, they didn't, there was only one church. There wasn't um, a, a culture of disposability. It just wasn't even practical. It wasn't a possibility. Um, there was a life that was devoted and lived with one another. Um, and they devoted themselves, continued steadfastly to it. That they, when, they, when they covenanted with Christ, they knew that they covenanted also with the people. That as long as they were to stay devoted to Christ, they were to stay devoted to the people. That was the idea. As Christ shared with them, they were to share with one another. They were devoted. They were devoted to the fellowship. You know? Luke fleshes that out a little bit in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, exactly what that looked like. Um, but they were willing to sell everything that they had. Again, this isn't communism. This isn't socialism. Um, this is voluntary condescension of each person who saw a need in another brother or sister and they were willing to give themselves over to that and to, take, um, and to sacrifice for the benefit and the health and prosperity um, of another person. Why? Because they, it says in Acts chapter, 40, chapter, chapter 4 and verse 32 that they were of one heart and one soul. And you know what? There was not a needy single person among them. There was none who had any want. Why? Because of the devotion and steadfastness that they had with one another. I'm in Acts chapter 15 and verse number 13. We don't have time to look at all of these, but I want to give them to you. You take them home. But in Acts chapter 15 and verse number 13... Um, let me turn there. You don't necessarily need to, though. Um, but in Acts chapter... Oh, I'm sorry, Romans chapter number 15 and verse number 13 give you a little insight into the devotion that they had to one another in the fellowship of the saints. You read these... Um, 15 and verse number 13, you read these words. And I may have actually recorded the wrong passage there. Acts chapter... Or Romans 15, 13... A preacher's great death. No. Um, Acts chapter 15, in Romans chapter 15, you do read it. It may be in uh, Romans chapter... I'm not sure. But they were to watch their diet. Even if it's not a sin, they were to love one another with so much that to change their diet so that it was not to cause a brother spiritual harm. And you see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as well and in Romans probably chapter 14 actually. Yeah, verse, Romans chapter 14, verse number 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve that not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. I know and I'm not convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself, but if him uh, who considers anything to be unclean to him, it is unclean. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. That part of their devotion was to commit themselves to one another in such a way that they were to share possessions and meet one another's needs. And in, and in this context also, that they were to watch their diet. That, it, that, if it, that, it, that if it was going to cause their brother to sin, they were to love one another so much that they would change their diet so that it wouldn't cause their brother spiritual harm. If you were to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and you don't need to turn there either, but in 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, um, you read about taking brothers to court. That it argues there that if someone wrongs you within the family of God, you are not to take your brother to court. That you're to let the church judge the matter. 
But he argues that if necessary, you suffer financial harm for the sake of the church and for your brother. That this is the type of commitment that you are to have to the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 9, in verse number 12, if you want, you can turn there. I want to read this one to you. 1 Corinthians chapter number 9 and verse number 12. Paul surrenders a salary for the love of the church such that it would not hinder the progress of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 9 and verse number 12, he says, If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? And he's arguing that you're not to muzzle the ox while it's out, and you're not to, um, while it's treading out the grain, that while it works, you're not to forego um, feeding it. And he argues the same about the people of God, and he argues the same about the minister of God. He says, Yet nevertheless, we've not taken up this right. Why? Because he endures all things, lest we hinder the sake of the gospel. That the Apostle Paul was willing to live in spiritual poverty that the church might flourish. Why? Because if the church flourishes, the gospel will flourish by necessity. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 5, you read about a man who is given over to all types of immorality, particular sexual immorality, that he is um, engaged in physical intimacy with someone, even of his family, that he's not supposed to be. What happens is that the church loves him and puts him outside the church in 2 Corinthians chapter number 2, what you read is you read, of, I think, about the restoration of this man. That in 2 Corinthians chapter number 2, you read about restoring a brother that has sinned against you. Verse number 5, he says, But if anyone has caused you grief, he's not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. That he argues that, that there was a man within the church that had sinned of a, such a grievous that they put him outside for a period of time. In 2 Corinthians, I think he's arguing that you need to bring the man back if he's repentant. That this is the type of devotion. And that actually not to is satanic. And it is to be devoted even to demonic, demonic um, atmosphere. 2 Corinthians 9 in 8, which we read this morning, um, Nathan came up for the offering, that collections were taken up um, to support the churches. That those who had more were to give to those who did not, and thus it benefited both. In 2 Corinthians chapter number 11 and verse number 20, I'm going to read this to you. The Apostle Paul recounts all of his sufferings for Christ's sake. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse number 20, he says, For you put up with it uh, with... Uh, if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts you, if one strikes you on the face, to our shame I say that we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Are there any Hebrews? So am I. Are there Israelites? So am I. Verse number 23, are there any ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. Verse 24, from the Jews five times I received 40 stripes, minus one. Three times I was beaten, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked a night and a, a day I, I've been in the deep. I'm in journeys often in perils and waters and so forth and so on. Weariness, weariness and tool, verse 27. Verse 28, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily? My deep concern for all the churches. You get that? He says, I've been beaten, I've been battered, I've been bruised. I've been left for dead. But you know what I'm concerned about daily? You. You. I count all those things little. Galatians chapter 6 and verse number 2, you're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians chapter 2 and verse number 6, they're to share and support the leaders and the teachers that are over them. To a church that, that is not even a great church in Galatia. 
It's a church that has been bewitched. It is a church that is sacrificing in part to, to, to some. And he says that part of the way in which you're going to save the church is to, is to, to give yourself over for it, to, to commit yourself to it, to devote yourself to the thing. You know? That there's a, there's, a, there's a functionality to a church that is inherent in it. That there must be a devotedness to it for it to be saved. For it to, to continue. For it to persevere. Those within it must persevere with it. Even in the midst of the fact that it's not perfect. And they're going to fail. Even when there's sexual immorality going on in it. Whenever it's lacking in these areas. When it's being bewitched by other doctrines. And Paul is arguing for a devotedness to it. And a sacrifice of self such that he's going to be beaten, battered, and bruised. But those aren't the things that he's thinking about. He simply he says, he says that daily the things that concern me in Corinth, it's for you. It's for your prosperity. It is for your soul. It is for your nourishment. That in Ephesians chapter 6, that slaves are to obey their masters. That they are to love their, their masters more than even their freedom. He doesn't argue that they are to break chains and bonds and run for their own freedom and the liberty they have for Christ. They say, serve Him in the Lord like you're serving the Lord, not Him. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse number 19, Paul gives and sends away Timothy and Epaphroditus while he's in jail. To do so is to send away some of his most closest confidants and ministers in the faith that can minister to him. And he sends them away to other churches. Why? Because they need them. That Paul sacrifices his, his wealth. Paul sacrifices his spiritual health. Paul sacrifices his brothers in the faith. Why? Because he has anxiety for the church. And we could go on and on and on. Colossians 1.24 says that he endures Christ's affliction. Why? For the sake of the church. That Paul was devoted to the church. The church was clearly and evidently, evidently devoted to each other, not only in life, but also such that it would cause poverty and even death. They didn't leave because they got their feelings hurt. They didn't leave because um, they didn't have the right programs. They didn't leave because um, the, the, the music wasn't just quite robust. They didn't leave because they got offended over this person or that person. They didn't leave because of all the drama. If there was problems, they fixed it. If there was drama, they stopped it. If there was sin, they rebuked it. If there was people to be reinstated, they restored them. If there was apostates, they excommunicated them. If they were, uh, if, if they were repentant, they welcomed them back. If there were financial needs, they took care of it. Even if they had to sell their own property to give to it. If there was theological disagreement, they consulted the apostles and went to the Word of God. Um, they maintained unity of the body. Why? Because... It was Christ's prayer for them. And it was their great desire. That they were devoted to the church no matter what. How does this apply to us? Does it even matter? What are the implications? The steadfastness of devotion to the fellowship is important because the steadfastness of the devotion of the fellowship is the proclamation of the gospel. It is a proclamation of the gospel. That the claims of the gospel are clear. Sinners can be reconciled by a holy God in spite of their sin through faith. I mean, to practically say in a church that that's not true is to deny the gospel practically. To not forgive someone because of sin that they've committed against you or your family is to fundamentally deny the power of the gospel. It is an outgrowth of someone who does not deeply believe the promises of God or His gospel. 
They may say, well, well, God can forgive them, but I can't. After all, I'm not God. That's right. You're not, I'm not. But at the same time, you deny the fundamental truth that you are reconciled to God as well and that He shares with you His very nature and character and preeminently with a character that separates Him. One of the preeminent characteristics that separates Him from all of the creation is His ability to forgive. You teach others that what Christ died to accomplish is either not rightfully or practically, practically His. That He died to extend to you His divine nature. Thus, it is your right and your prerogative to stand up today, tomorrow, or the next two years. It is not your prerogative to stand up today, tomorrow, or the next two years and say, I know I should forgive and reconcile and restore that brother, um, but they don't deserve it and I'm not ready. Is there anyone at the door of Christ today with a true repentant heart that He will turn away? then neither should we. Neither should we. When we have problems with one another, we proclaim and reflect the gospel in our interactions with one another and our willingness to love, our willingness to forgive. 1 Corinthians 13.7 says, Love hopes all things. That we must hope in the gospel. And that if it can restore the relationship between God and man, that it can be manifest among sinners and among us as well. That with forgiveness comes reconciliation and restoration. Thus, we must throw out the notion that forgiveness is a reality without that. Without steadfast devotion of the fellowship in good times and bad, we fundamentally deny the gospel. That it's important because steadfast devotion is necessary for the church's functions. Listen, I'm not that great of a preacher. And this is not a preaching station. This is not a watering hole. This is not a place to stop once a week and refill. This is not a gas station. We are a fellowship. We are a family. A home is not a place where the entirety of its members come together at night and recount what they did that day totally aside from each other. Um, It's not individuals who live their lives apart from one another and come together and just kind of rehash the day and talk about problems and how they could make it better. It has functions that need to be carried out. Fathers, mothers, children all have functions and responsibilities within the corporate unit called the family. Otherwise, it loses its defining characteristics, its distinctiveness from other organizations, and literally ceases to be a family. It's just a bio- it becomes just a biological um, affiliation. A church is the same. This is not a watering hole. It's not a preaching station. It's a family that has particular functions. It does things. It does things. It rebukes one another. It's brothers. It stirs up lethargic people. It loves when it's difficult and difficult people. It receives love when it would rather return it with vengeance. It confesses sins once to another. It points out sins. It forgives until it hurts. It forgives until forever and sacrifices until it's tapped out. There is no possible way that this is even possible if you're not devoted. There's no way in the world. There's no way that a church can actually function as a church in its God-ordained capacity without being devoted to the church. It's impossible. A church cannot actually be a church if people have one foot in and one foot out. Ready to move on and ready to, 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 to push away or ready to, to run whenever um, things aren't the way that they think that they ought to be or the, thing that, the way that they hoped or this or that. And that actually church, when it comes together and functions as God ordained it, is actually, um, you have to be devoted to, to, to get through this. You have to be devoted in marriage. Right? 
Anybody that's been married for any length of time knows that whenever you stand up on that day and you make those vows, you don't really know half of what you're getting yourself into. But a person that is not devoted singularly to that person will not survive. They won't do it. Why? Because that other person's not that great. Like, and I'm not that great. You know? Like, Mandy, she'll stand up here and tell you, like, she's not that great either. My children, children aren't that great. Like, we're just a bunch of sinners saved by the grace of God, and God has put us together. And, like, and if each of us are not devoted, committed, steadfastly, one to another, you know, then, 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 then we'll fall, we would have already fallen apart years ago. Because I have issues, she has issues, they have issues. And if it wasn't the love of God binding us together, we would have abandoned each other long ago. And that's the problem in most churches. There's not a devotedness to it. And to be honest with you, it can't function as a church. And if you're waiting to create an environment for fellowship before you actually fellowship, you're fooling yourself. You know? You are to share life with one another. Like, and I know that I, that sounds negative, a lot of what I'm saying, but the fruit is amazing. Like that's fruit you don't get anywhere else. Like being married for the last 13 years, like I found fruit along the way that I didn't know existed. Yeah, there's been rotten stuff, and I've done most of it. But like along the way, you just there's just sweetness that God just meets with you, and, and he just he just irons out the things that, that you do wrong, and he just there's so much forgiveness, and there's so much love, and there's so much grace, and there's so much holiness, and there's so much purity. And I thank God because the great tools that God's given in my family has been them. Like, yeah, we're not that great, but we're his. You know? And we're better today and more holy and more righteous and more gracious and more loving because of it. And the amazing thing about a New Testament church that devotes itself to one another is yes, it gets messy. But it's also amazing. And there's fruit to be had. Because it's only in that mess when you recognize it and devote yourself to it that you find grace immeasurable. And that you can't just wait. And I think that's something that we do as well. We say, you know, we want a fellowship, but we need to get the house right. We need to get this right. You need to do that right. We need to have a little more structure. We need to be a little more holy. We need to be a little uh, serve in a greater capacity. I'll do it in six months. Not realizing that the sharing of life together is actually what makes you better. It's actually what makes you more holy. It's actually what refines you. It's that, that shared life one with another. That if you wait to create a better environment, that better environment never comes. Never comes. Also, steadfast devotion mortifies the spirit of American consumerism. To be committed to a local congregation in this fashion destroys the spirit and impulse of the age. You cannot properly be ministered to with a consumer mentality. You can't grow if you've got one foot in and one foot out. You can't grow um, because growth happens when iron sharpens iron. And a lot of times that comes with sparks. That a deep understanding of the gospel demands a fight. It's war. Not to win or to achieve salvation, but to gain a deeper understanding of the gospel. And that when you're with the same group of sinners for ten years, you have a greater understanding of the gospel than you ever did before. There's no doubt about that. Also, it's important because it mirrors Christ's devotion to you. Jesus is devoted to you. We have a Savior who is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He would never leave you. He would never forsake you. He would never give up on you. Why do we give up on the church? 
I believe it's because we have a weak and anemic view of the gospel. Why is it that so many churches are disbanding and in disunity and fighting with one another and can't get along and work through it? It's because of the culture of disposability, but it's also because they have a weak view of the gospel. Christ is devoted to death. Paul was devoted to death. In some sense, we need to be devoted to death. That doesn't mean that you might not, uh, that, that you won't, you'll be at this church for the entirety of your life. There are good reasons that you need to go. There are good reasons that Paul had to go. There were good reasons that Timothy and Titus had to go. But it wasn't because of a consumer mentality. It was because the gospel sent them forth. And they were just as committed as they left as when, or while they were there. And that's why they wrote letters and went back and just prayed intently. Not only it's important because it evangelizes the lost, and we've already mentioned that. Acts chapter 2, verse 46 and 47. You know what it does? It creates a reverential awe in all that see it. That's what it says there in Acts chapter 2. That as a result of their gathering together, their devotedness to the Word of God, their devotedness to the fellowship, their devotedness to unity of prayer, and their devotedness to the Lord's table and to the sacraments, their devotedness, the fact that they have a love and a gaze upon this group of people and the world looks in and they have no idea why. You know? And they see things and fruit that's manifested that, that the world doesn't have. Why? Because the world knows about change. The world knows about consumer mentality. The, know, the world knows that when things get hard, just leave. Just abandon it. Find something else. Something else is out there. It looks better. It'll work for you. What separates this institution from those institutions? Is there a uniqueness about this body that, that the world can't find in any other institution? Political, social, nonprofit, anything else. Is there something here unique? Is there? Is there? Is there a devotedness to the local assembly such that you long for the presence and glory of Christ every single week and you look forward to it? And as a result of it, you're willing to fight for it. You're willing to go to task. You're willing to suffer. You're willing to be impoverished. You're willing to give not only of your finances and your materials, but also of yourselves one to another. Do you have that here? It worries me that many of you don't. It worries me that many of you are sitting at home and struggling in parenting, struggling in marriage, struggling with your career, struggling. And you come and you just you think this is a feeling station and you wonder why week in and week out you leave unfilled. You know? Because oftentimes the feeling happens not only here but out there. Here in a few moments when we gather for fellowship. You know, and we push each other on and we encourage. It happens out there. It happens on Tuesday night. It happens on Thursday night. It happens on Friday night. When we gather together outside the body and we, we live life and share with one another. You know, like I'm not, I'm not just, I'm not into creating this. I'm not, suffice it to say, I'm not content with just this. I want a family. I want a family. I want sons and daughters. I want, I want uh, brothers and sisters. I want fathers and mothers. I want older women teaching younger women, older men teaching younger men. I want what the New Testament describes as, as the New Testament church. Because that's where Christ is. If you think you're going to find Him with you know, a 30-minute homily and, and, and a few good songs, then, then you're foolish. 
He's there, but He's more up there. He's there. He's in you. And oftentimes you'll find more growth in that than you will even in, in this. That, that all of this works together as cogs in the wheel. Are you devoted? Are you devoted? If so, in what ways? You know? What have you given? What have you sacrificed? What service have you done? You know? If not, let's get to it. Let's do it. Let's devote ourselves to the body to, to serve in a capacity that God has called us and gifted us. You know, let's let's go to one another. Let's be there. Let's let's talk about it practically. And maybe on Wednesday nights we'll talk more about that and how that practically applies. The thrust of the message is just to ask ourselves today, are we one foot in, one foot out? Are we uniquely or are we uniquely different than all the world and devoted to Christ's body in such a way that in poverty and in death I'm willing to give it because that's where we find Christ. And that's where the gospel flourishes. And that's when people will look with reverential awe and be saved because they've got something that I don't find in, out there. They've got something unique. Do you have something unique to offer the world that you can't find in any other institution in this world outside the church and the family? Let's pray. Father, we love and thank You and praise You for the glory of Christ. We thank You, Father, for His devotedness to us. We thank You for the fellowship of the saints. Father, we thank You for Your patience with us. Father, I thank You for Your patience with me. Father, I thank You that You take unholy things and make them holy. I thank You, I thank you for taking poor attempts and doing eternal things with them. Because I don't know what I just did. I feel so insufficient. I feel like I'm laboring in my own strength. I have such a need for you. I have a, such a need for Christ. I have such a need for the Spirit of God. Because if anything's going to be accomplished with that, Lord, you're going to have to do it. Because I am weak. Father, we look to you this morning as our only hope. Father, may they not look to me. May they not um, come here to hear a great preacher, Father, because I'm not. May they not come to see a great man because, Father, I'm not. I am only a sinner saved by the grace of God. Father, striving to honor you with, with my life. So help me, Lord, to do that. Help them, Father, to find family here. Help them to be able to lean, Father, wholly and consistently upon one another, Father. Help them to be devoted um, as a husband is to a wife or as a wife is to a husband or a, um, a marriage father is to children. God, may they find you as they find one another and devote themselves to it. Lord, we thank you for what you are and what you accomplish in our lives and just pray that you do so much the more. Father, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.